Rex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Our co-host Julie Ranch had a family emergency was not able to make it today. Our special guest is Rob Corns, author of The Seal Serpent, co-written with Jerry Cunningham, who is a Irish cryptozoologist, I assume. Hello, Rob. Hi, Scott. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. Do you want to um, fill us in on your background and how you got started in cryptozoology? Um, I think, like lots of, lots of people in the field, I was uh, fascinated by mysteries of monsters, unexplained, all that sort of stuff as a child. And then... As a teenager, I came across uh, Costello's In Search of Late Monsters, and I thought that was, it fascinated me. I thought it was a very novel way of looking at a possible explanation for some late monsters and sea serpents. And for some reason, it followed into the back of my head, uh, where it's been ever since. And as the years went by, it sort of fell out of popularity with arguments made that if a saw existed, it would follow where well, had to follow certain ecology of today's schools and that's coming to land to give birth, etc. And therefore, a 30 or 40 foot long neck seal would have been found at some stage. And I found that quite frustrating. Um, so, in the early 90s, I basically went out and bought a whole load of um, books on the mainland of plastic evolution and the pinnipeds sat down, went through everything I could to see if there was any way that such an animal could exist. And I think the first uh, initial research took the form of the Serial Seal campaign website. Yes, I, re- I remember that back in the, in the late 90s. Yeah, some, some of the pictures are still around, really. But um, then that led to a couple of articles in some very niche uh, journals. And the whole research in a nutshell was published in the Surf Surf Yearbook in 2007. Um, and that's basically where I was up to that point. So that the whole theory of your life. Um, and then a few years later, I um, started to get the itch again to look at research. I was particularly fascinated by the whole fossil phenomena in Connemara, Northwest Island. Um, so I thought, you know, I'd like to do a bit of research into that. And then the funny thing was, I saw that um, Roland Coughlin and Gary Cunningham had written this man in Ireland, and that had a lot of this stuff about horses in So I, I was going to get this type of copy. Now, my wife's Irish, she's just gone cold, and so we go back quite a bit. And uh, we were going back to Bairdale already. And I thought, well, while I'm over there, I'll get myself a copy. Now, obviously, because it's such a small publishing uh, reach, there was no copy in Ireland I could find. Um, so when we got back, and the evening I got back, I ordered a copy of the Bernison. And then this is where it gets real, a bit of synchronicity here. Because the very next day, a letter came through the post box from Northern Ireland from Gary Cunningham. So that he'd read about my research, he'd do more research, and perhaps we should sort of collaborate. 
Um, and that sort of led to an initial expedition to Connemara in 2013, um, where we got on really well, um, had a blast driving around, interviewing witnesses, getting the lay of the land, um, led to a couple of further expeditions in Connemara and another one in County Mayo. Um, and it was during that sort of time that I thought, well, you know, with so many more resources available online, I'd like to go back and have a look at everything I've written in the past and to see if there was any sort of other evidence out there. Um, so that's really how the sort of source I think came along um, and how, you know, by approaching something Do you want to explain to people about the origins of the theory with Odomines and Hubelmans and all that? One difference between what you're proposing in your book and books that have been written in the past is that you think a lot of the sightings that have been cited as evidence for the long neck seal are actually observations of known pinniped species in out-of-the-way places. Yeah, 
thing that was quite unexpected from our point of view was to find that certainly in the UK and Europe over the last hundred years, at least a dozen, probably twice that number of sea lions, California sea lions, possibly stellar sea lions, had actually escaped from the captivity or had been deliberately released prior to the First and Second World War. And these are non-indigenous species to the UK and Europe, and they are completely, they have a completely different morphology to the existing benefits, which, which are all food seals or illness seals. And it's not really hard to imagine that perhaps some lake monsters and sea serpent sizes are simply due to these unfamiliar benefits seen uh, by people who don't really know what they're looking at. Um, <coughs> and if you look at uh, a California sea lion, for instance, a full grown California sea lion is about eight foot long. It can stand at a head height of five foot, so it's a big animal. It's able to move on land, usually it can't fit this quite well, and the gap shapes and quite big obstacles. It's got a couple of external ears that may look like horns. It's got a, a deceptively long neck, especially when it's stretching. And if you were in the remote countryside in a rural part of the country, driving past a lake in the middle of the night, um, and an eight-foot California sea lion bounded out in front of you, you may well think you've seen some sort of prehistoric reptile. And if you've ever seen a sea lion get out of water with its coat wet, it's black, it looks slimy, it does look quite reptilian. And I think that in the absence of any other obvious existing candidate for such reports, that, you know, a sea lion is probably quite a good explanation for some, certainly some local Now you um, said, you suggest in your book that possibly Arthur Grant saw a sea lion at Loch Ness back in 
find his part because if you think about it, he was supposed to have been a veterinary student. So he would have been quite uh, knowledgeable about mammals and reptiles, probably had a good idea of, you know, dinosaurs being quite reptiles. Yeah, um, well, one of the most interesting things related to that sighting is the supposed drag trace that was found by the Edinburgh College students. Yeah, this is about the Wittsburg Arts Museum. I mean, it, it makes sense, but um, what I'm sort of saying is that, you know, even if it, it might, if he, what if he saw it, recognized it for what it was, and then decided to go along with, um, you know, what was happening at the time and make it a monster, which is what he described as a possibility and a pheasant or yeah, well, you're, you're probably aware of this. There were sightings of an amphibious plesiosaur-like animal in southern Argentina 11 years before the whole Nessie thing got started, the so-called Patagonian plesiosaur. Perhaps something similar was going on there, too. I don't know. Um, well, I think, you know, our, our sort of research is Well, you have what the stellar sea lion in the southern hemisphere. The most reptilian, plesiosaurian-looking pinniped is the leopard seal. I could, I could see somebody.
confusing a leopard seal for a reptile. It looks reptilian. seen some pictures of walrus with longish necks too so I would think probably walrus might be responsible for some sightings too Now, the oldest fossil pinnipeds are from the late Oligocene, I think. Is that correct? Early Miocene? So they would have come in about the Pliocene. So you have sort of reevaluated some of the classic cases like Macintosh Bell and a few others that have 
commonly been cited as evidence for a long-necked unknown giant pinniped. Do you want to explain some of your revisions of what has normally been cited as classic evidence? Okay, well, the What about the um, Corinthian sighting? Thank you. 
Christians, they're not indigenous to that area uh, of the world to be found in. Um, his account also, you know, he's got an extremely vivid imagination and for all his description of the loop that he was seeing a positive sort, he was actually sort of recounting the main characteristics and the fact that he actually gives a sort of little baby laugh while at the end. I think there's quite a bit of um, imagination. Embellishment. Yeah, I mean, but then, you know, Edmunds uh, has sort of evidence or um, that, you know, he was quite a life character. And he certainly then was recruited in contemporary newspapers of his life as well. But there was no evidence at any time that he was deliberately um, deleted anything. So he may have seen something that was put kind of completely, um, you know, it was put him into a different world, if you like. Yeah, well, as you know, one one piece of evidence that I personally added to the pile was Parsons Seal. I discovered that on an old microfish in 1996. Now, I'll, I'll let you explain your your take on that if you want want to. Thank you. 
Well, I think my impression is that the drawing that appears in Parsons was made by him years after the original report by Grew, so I don't know how much you can read into the illustration. I believe I believe Darren Nash actually went to look for it and couldn't find it. I believe so. But um, my understanding is that it was just a skin and you know there are several cases where they have, have had preserved snake skins that got stretched, which give a false impression of the actual original size of the snake. So we may be dealing with a situation like that, too, you know, where the skin got stretched or something. So still an interesting um, report, you know, relative to the idea of a long neck seal. But, you know, I think I think you realize you can only read so much into it that it's kind of shaky. Well, I think what it typically, um, another reason is to, you know, it looks like a, maybe a post Uh, can you get a little bit closer to the microphone? Your audio is going down. Uh, yeah, that's better, yeah. So, going through all the evidence and reviewing all the evidence for your new book, what cases do you think are the best for the idea of there actually being a unknown species of giant long-necked pinniped that we don't know about? Well, I think our speculation, or the best way we could think about it, um, which would make sense, would be if in the past, maybe a thousand years ago, you know, maybe longer than that, a form of thirsting or sea lion had become detached from its normal habitat, so North Pacific or South Atlantic, um, which can happen sometimes, and it ended up in the North Atlantic where historically there's never been any evidence for any person or sea lion existing, it would find itself in competition with the indigenous cruising species, and there's about five or six of them plus the water. And so if it was a difficult ecological bit to adapt and, and remain in competition, then we speculated that perhaps it adopted uh, a sort of uh, foraging ecology that actually swam into rivers, got into lakes, 
falling fish or more plentiful supplies of fish. And if that was the case, it isn't too difficult to see how a potential hyperspeed evolutionary event occurred, and I can explain that a, a bit more later, and perhaps um, created or encouraged the development of a slightly longer neck than present species. Um, not hugely long and not hugely different in size to an extant species. But if you had, you know, it's, that's a theoretical way that it could have happened because if you've got a slightly longer neck, it's easier to catch falling fish. So you have got a sort of miniature sort of presence or if you like. And the thing that was quite interesting was that if you speculated that that had happened and you had a fur seal which has got a couple of ears, it's got a long mane, um, it's made inside the small pony, it can move about or could walk on land, even perhaps gallop, could that have been the origin uh, for the legendary water horse? Um, you know, so that was quite intriguing as well. But I think if, if there is such an animal in existence, then it isn't hugely different in size to current extant species. Uh, we're not looking at a hugely, vastly long neck, we're looking at something that's significantly longer and certainly looks completely, um, you know, really strong. Well, elephant seals can get 20 feet long, I think. back to Pontopidon, you have stories of the sea serpent being carnivorous and taking uh, domestic animals. Now, you talk about some of those cases of, of ordinary pinnipeds being aggressive to dogs and things like that. You want to ex expound on that? Most people view um, sort of cuddly or cuteness or pinnipeds, you know, on the TV, etc. But, you know, they're, they're wild animals, basically, and they're, certainly there are a number of instances which we've included in the book where, you know, captive animals, tame, apparently otherwise tame animals, can cause horrendous injuries to um, people, and yes, they attack dogs. Um, you know, they can behave quite aggressively. Um, if you look carefully, you know, there's a, a little boy who was gored by a fur seal after a show that basically attacked um, his sort of abdomen, caused massive trauma. Um, a leopard seal took off a, a diver's nose in the Antarctic and, you know, killed, swung up dying. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of reports of aggressiveness out there. And it's not known to what extent pinnipeds actually take birds or avian prey. Um, the leopard seal does it, including penguins. Um, recently, I think the, the harbour seals in North Scotland have been found to be taking either bats and things like that. So, um, you know, I suppose if they're, they, their food supply 
Well, looking back at the origins of Champ, in the 1870s, there are several newspaper articles talking about missing dogs and these animals coming ashore and taking chickens and domestic farm animals. I don't know how much of that is made up for sensation. You know, there were a lot of newspaper hoaxes back in that era. But that kind of, part of that kind of ties in with what you're talking about. As you're aware, there are reports from Loch Ness of occasional, uh, supposedly one sighting of, of Nessie said it had some kind of a small animal in its mouth as it was going back into the lake. There's actually a couple of reports like that. Uh, the Spicers, and I think it's a woman named Eleanor Price Hughes claimed she saw what looked like a piglet in its mouth. So who knows? I think, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, in the book as well, we've seen some reports on otters that, you know, have attacked sheep and have been found killing sheep. So, you know, never say never, I suppose. Yeah. So looking at the cases in your book, which individual cases do you find most supportive of this long neck seal idea? I think there, there are a couple. I think the ones for me were the uh, Discovery Island account um, from British uh, Columbia. You know, seen by a fisherman who. David Miller? Yeah, David Miller's account. Yes, um, I'm familiar with it. Now, Although that's an area where there are stellar sea lions and fur seals, etc., you know, he describes a 10-foot, well, an 8-10-foot neck, you know, and it's, you can see the profile, it, it does look like a long neck, you know, no matter how you cut it. It's got a couple of external ears. Apart from the neck, you would say that it is uh, uh, some sea lion or fur seal. So I think that was quite an interesting um, account for me. And the other one, um, that may well be out of place anymore, was um, one from Iceland, where, um, well, actually there are three from Iceland, one where um, a sort of local bird watcher saw what he thought was, saw a seal, which he thought could have been a walrus, but he drew a picture of it, um, which is in a large Thomas's word walking book as well, and it looks like a stellar sea line, basically, um, it's using its fine flippers. And there's another one from um, Lake, uh, the, where, I can't pronounce it, you know, where the, the, it's 
The Ledger Flight? The Ledger Flight in yeah. Iceland? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, was in a boat and then a sort of creature popped up beside the boat which looked exactly like the sea, even though he said he'd never seen a sea with such a long neck. Um, and Iceland, being in the North Atlantic, has always struck me as potentially a very good place to find a long neck for the boat to did it too. It's also got quite a, a long history of strange animals in lakes there. Um, so, you know, I mean, going back I felt that was quite interesting. Um, so those two accounts stick out for me. Yeah. And we should explain to people that there are isolated, landlocked populations of seals in certain lakes around the world, such as Lake Iliamna, uh, Lake Baikal, Lake Ladoga, Lake Saima. And these have been isolated according to genetic studies for like 10,000 years since the end of the last glaciation. Well, that's the thing about it. The, the, the places that we know that have an indigenous population of seals, it's no mystery about what they are. People have known about them for hundreds of years. Yes, especially if it's in a place it's not normally encountered. Not long ago, you sent me an Irish lake monster documentary about the monsters of Connemara. Now, your co-author in the documentary 
was talking about primitive whales. Does he still prescribe to that view, or has he changed his mind since that documentary was made? I'm I'm having I'm having a problem hearing you again. I'm just saying that um, um, his, his views have changed. That was before he sort of read my research, and that's when um, we sort of got together and we realised that there was definitely some a question to be answered there. But, you know, it wasn't really any unknown species. Um, it was probably indigenous and non-indigenous heads and other. Um, marine predators, and I'm actually going to put something on the Facebook page or the blog soon about a unique encounter that hasn't been published before, which Gary um, took got in, I think it was about 2012 for a witness, uh, which is very interesting. But we're actually just finishing um, what I would consider to be the most comprehensive book on Irish aquatic cryptozoology, which looks right back at folklore accounts and um, sort of more modern accounts. Surprisingly, quite a lot of information there that I don't think people will be aware of. And it does include um, also quite extensive um, redux of Palomara. Um, and one thing Gary, which is brilliant with Gary, is that he's been going to Palomara for you know over 20 years. He knows the witnesses, he's spoken to original witnesses, um, he knows people over there. So we get able to speak to these people, uh, make new acquaintances, hear about rumors, etc. Um, so it's all very, you know, I think there's quite a bit of a new stuff there. Well, the two, the two strangest reports from Ireland that come to my mind are the Low Dub Monster and the Akil Island Monster. Do you have any insights on those two particular cases? We actually went there in 2016, I think, um, and we went to Apple Island and we spoke to people there. Um, the general, I mean, unfortunately, the original witnesses have all passed away, and Swahis of Glendary Lock and his private land then, and it was, you, you couldn't get into it, basically. Um, the interesting thing with uh, the Swahili's not is the fact that probably it's sort of gorgeous to see. Um, it's not that difficult for anyone from the sea to actually come in and get into there, um, if, you know, if that was the case. But the people we spoke to, you know, we, can't, we got the impression they thought it was, you know, a, a lot of hoax. However, um, the original Echo Island encounter, um, there, there was a supposedly another one in the 80s, which was a hoax, which I think they were referring to. Um, but basically, looking at it in, um, you know, as being as comprehensive as possible, I also uncovered um, subsequent newspaper accounts, which are within the Irish book, which show um, big footprints of a doctor or I suppose you've got to get the scene at the same time, um, or in the vicinity. So, looking at it 
see it holistically, it may well have been a, a, a large object caught in headlights, which would look unusual. Though it happened at a period of time when there were other sightings in Connemara, which is sort of naval country, uh, which could be down to, again, hate to say, a possible vagrant sea life um, in the way it moved, um, and the fact that something similar had been seen in Connemara in the same sort of time frame. So, you know, that's, there's very few things that you would really do. So an otter, a sea lion, um, didn't even speculate it could be a wallaby. Um, there are some wallabies in Ireland, but there's no escapes or no problems around that area. Um, so it is a bit of a enigma, uh, but we do quite a bit of ducks in the book. The not dub creature, well, you know, that's totally bizarre. It's been suggested that it could have been uh, some sort of hog, um, wild pig, um, which, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite add up. Um, the animal described is sort of looking like a hippo with perhaps a horn um, on the front. Is, is interesting, and I'm sure people have seen the, the famous drawings of it. Yep. Uh, from the pinniped point of view, the interesting thing there is that there have been occasions where hooded seals um, have been found inland in uh, northwest Ireland. And whether this could have been such a case with a hooded seal um, does look quite different. It has got a That nose bladder. Society in 
and they used to get into Lake Champlain back in the 1800s. And as recently as 2015, a gray seal tried to enter the Champlain-Hudson Canal, which goes directly into Lake Champlain. So it's not impossible that they could still be getting in and there occasionally. Yes. And that's just around the corner from Okanagan Lake, home of the Ogopogo. They're amphibious too, they can get out and crawl around obstructions. So when is your next book coming out? I just want to let you know, I loved The Seal Serpent. It was a great book, and I was just amazed at how much new information you had added to the long neck seal idea and seal sightings. I thought you did. You guys did a great job, and I look forward to the next book, too. It was a long time coming, a lot of rewrites, a lot of typos, you know, but I think there's something in there for everyone. Um, there's new information, there's alternative uh, explanations, etc. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, there's something in there for anybody interested in a classic cryptozoology. Yeah. So, is there anything particular you want to add that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think I pretty much well got in what I wanted to speak about. Um, we could wrap it up if you want to. It's up to you. Um, well, yeah, I think I've got everything in there um, that I wanted to do. But I'm happy for any time you want to, you know, chat or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Um, sure. You should tell people where to get your book. Anybody who's interested, there is a, a Facebook page 
um, called the Soul Serpent, and there was a blog, Soul Serpent Blogspot. The Soul Serpent book is um, available on Amazon, um, both Amazons, um, quite reasonably priced. And as I said, I think there's something in there for everybody. Well, thank you, Rob. It's been a great conversation, and uh, I didn't know how long it would go. Um, so I guess we'll wrap it up if you if you want to. Oh, absolutely! You're welcome to come back anytime, and thank you for appearing on the program and uh, very interesting subject sure absolutely I think you already have my address don't you well I would appreciate it thank you yep well have a good one take care Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.